Peace be with you. When it comes to Christianity and the Bible, uh, some topics get all the press. They get all the excitement. You know, they make all the headlines. Uh, things like, you know, the apocalypse. You know, what's going to happen at the end of recorded human history? What does the book of Revelation say? And the return of Jesus and Armageddon and all that sort of stuff. That, that makes headlines. That makes news. People think of that. Uh, or maybe there's some, you know, modern uh, social justice issue, hot button issue, what's going on with that, who's saying what, you know, cancel culture, the whole thing. Or maybe it's just something that's really important but hard, and so we tend to pay attention to it more, something like loving our enemies, or maybe it's uh, praying for those who persecute you. Uh, another topic might be heaven, what's heaven like, or, 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 or is it really that amazing, or what might it be like for me, or uh, what is hell like, and is it really as bad you know, as, as, as Scripture and as what Christ teaches about it? Those are, those are hot-button issues, and those are things that grab the headlines. One of the things that's not on that list is abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ, and yet it is something that, first of all, Jesus tells us to do, and he tells us to do it every day. So it's something we're supposed to do, and it's something that is formative uh, to our character over the long haul. Who we are to be in God, our lives, our discipleship, so it nurtures us. It's formative over the long haul, and as we will find today, Jesus tells us that it is a source of joy in our lives. Joy in our lives. <clears throat> now, when people look back on the formative time of their own life on earth, it's like, okay, what was something that was like, positive, but something was really um, big? So significant in your life. So people might name some things, maybe a, a specific experience, um, something they can easily remember, something that was kind of splashy perhaps, or something that was unique. Um, <clears throat> you know something, and I'll give you two examples of things that are uh, so often very formative, and yet there's probably not going to make a ten, top ten list. One of them is family dinners. Family dinners, and may that not happen every night maybe, but they happen uh, some of the time. And I'm not talking about the food, although that's important. It's really about gathering around a table, looking at your people in the eye, them listening to you, uh, what you have to say, you listening to them. And those people starting to know that I am a part of a meaningful team who cares for me. Or maybe another experience might be that 18, uh, 17 or 18-year-old young person, and that person starts to... Um, you know, at that time in life, go for a Saturday walk with mom or dad. And it's something that they just do, just the two of them. And all of a sudden, it's this place of honesty, and the parents start sharing this information about what, what life is like and adulthood is like. And maybe the young person starts sharing more honest things about themselves, and they feel they can open up a little bit. And so in those years, in those moments, those people might not be able to put a finger on those things and say, those are the things that are so formative and, and, and joy-giving in my life as I have developed but as the years go on, they look back. Those are the sorts of things that people start to identify. Wait a second, that time around the table with family or that walk with mom or dad when I was 17, 18, that was so, so essential. Well, that's what abiding in Christ is like. So it might not be something that makes a huge list, but it is huge. It is a formative part of who we are in our lives and our discipleship, and it's a source of joy as we grow. But what is it? What in the world does abiding in Christ mean? How is it a source of joy in our lives? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this text that talks about it in John 15. We're going to go through the text line by line. And then we're going to make a practical application at the end uh, for us. And this is a way that we can all think about proactively about abiding in Christ. But as we think about that, here's a bit of a, a, bit of a teaser. Um, someone once asked someone else, how do you spell the word love? 
Maybe you've seen this in a meme somewhere or someone, you've heard this on a talk show or something. How do you spell love? One person, well, that's easy. L-O-V-E. I was like, no, here's how you spell love. T-I-M-E. Well, that's not how you spell it. Well, it kind of is. The idea is that when you actually love someone, uh, you spend time with them. It's as if you were saying, you are important enough to me that I'm going to take the time to be present to you. So we're going to open our, our Bibles to Gospel of John, chapter 15. So you recall that this is a part of our line-by-line walk through uh, the Gospel of John. So John is the apostle. He has been walking and talking with Jesus, which is amazing. And <clears throat> this is in the period uh, immediately leading up to uh, the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus. And so Jesus has this very intense, very important uh, teaching with the 11 apostles. 11, not 12, because Judas has already left to go do his betraying work. And Jesus has told him to go do that uh, quickly. And so we're picking up uh, chapter 15, verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV. Jesus speaking, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now, a couple of words right off the top, vine. So usually when we think of vine, we think of something in the jungle. Uh, But here it's more like grapevine. Not like gossip network, but like a vine that grows grapes. And that's important to the metaphor that Jesus is going to use. And my father, meaning his heavenly father, is the vine dresser. Again, a bit of an awkward word for us who maybe aren't engaged in this all the time. Think gardener. Think farmer. Okay? Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you, uh, clean here meaning pure. That references something Jesus earlier taught. His, his word purifies us. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, a couple of things here um, about this whole imagery. We need to note that this is uh, the seventh of the I am saying. So as we've gone through the Gospel of John, it's structured in a very specific and meaningful way. And so <clears throat> there's seven uh, miraculous signs that Jesus does. There's also seven I am statements that he says. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. And what's interesting is these appear only in John's Gospel and they're constructed in the Greek in a very specific way. Recall that the oldest manuscripts are in Greek. It's ego eimi. And the significance that we need to remember is that when God revealed his name to Moses back at the burning bush in Exodus 3, his name is I am. I am. And, and that's that same specific Greek construction, ego eimi. And everyone knew that. And so what's happening here is Jesus is consciously taking the, the well-known name of God and applying it to himself in these seven I am statements. So this is another one of the things that you know, teaches us about the divinity of Jesus. And so not only that, but the things that he says he is reflect things that the God of Israel says. The things that he does reflect things that the God of Israel uh, does. So for example, Jesus says that he is the uh, bread of life. Well, God, uh, in in John chapter 6, so God feeds the Hebrews with manna from heaven. So Jesus is God come to us in human form, and he is the bread of life. Jesus says he's the light of the world. Well, God leads the Hebrews through the um, wilderness with this pillar of fire which sheds light. And at a celebration where they are remembering that very thing, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And so here he says, I am the true vine. So the connection we need to see is that in the Old Testament, uh, God's people were often called a vine, as in Isaiah 5. 
And so the, idea, the issue there was that whether or not those people are going to show that they are faithful to the God of Israel. And so Jesus, by saying he's the vine, his father is the gardener, we are the branches, he's saying these people of mine, they will, in fact, bear fruit. They will show evidence of their faithfulness and uh, discipleship. Now, it also says, because God cares about us so much, if we bear fruit, and bearing fruit, what does that mean? It means give evidence. I'm going to give evidence of faithfulness. Oh, someone was, so-and-so is fruitful in their work. They're, they're giving evidence of their work, right? Or they're, they're showing evidence of their discipleship. And so we will show evidence of our faithfulness to Jesus if we say we believe in Jesus. And when that happens, the gardener is going to prune us. Kind of sounds, doesn't sound too pleasant, uh, actually, when it comes to people. uh, Because we think of the hardships that we face. uh, And sometimes this is a pruning, right? We think of the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 12, that the Lord disciplines those he loves. And so uh, we all know, because we've been through these experiences, quite often these hardships that we experience, although not pleasant, are things that prune us. They refine us. They make us stronger. They give us more wisdom. They make us more like Jesus, right? And so we are invited to see this, uh, these difficulties uh, as pruning. I would invite us to see these difficulties as pruning. Uh, the great American preacher, Charles Spurgeon, about this verse said, uh, If we may produce more fruit for the Lord, then we will not mind the pruning. That's a very faithful thing to say. I think it's something to shoot for. Uh, if, if, if we know that that pruning creates more fruit for the Lord, we will not mind it. And so that's something to shoot for. Uh, And then he says, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. And I just want to highlight here how this is a very significant verse because when you come across a word in a text that comes up over and over and over and over again, you know that you're supposed to pay attention to it. And this is one of those words. And so especially in the Gospel of John, the word abide, it's a Greek verb, mino, um, it comes up 40 times. And just in these 17 verses that we're looking at today, it comes up 11 times. So as we track through, notice how much, abide, 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 how much this comes up time and time again, okay? Uh, but what does it mean? Well, like last week with, uh, when we talked about the Holy Spirit and the uh, paraclete, it's one of those difficult words to translate into English. Similar thing here. So some translations might say, um, Uh, abide in me, some will say stay in me, some will say remain in me, some will say reside in me. And so as you study this word and look at the context, I think this is kind of a fair definition of what it is meant when we abide with Jesus. Here it is. Abiding is closely cultivating your enduring bond with Jesus over time. I think when we look at the various passages, this is what comes to the foreground. So closely, so not aloof, not disinterested, not far away, not casual, closely cultivating. Cultivating, that's a, a metaphor from the world of gardening. Cultivating, you want something to grow. Your enduring bond with Jesus, it is a bond, it's a covenant bond. Right? He chooses us, as he will later say. We respond in faith. We have this bond, this sacred contract with him. And it's something over time that we nurture. So it's not just in one ear and out the other. It's just a little bit touchy. No, it's, this is the long haul. We are called pilgrims. This is a journey. So it's closely cultivating your enduring bond with Jesus over time. And so just before we move on, I just uh, also, we need to note that these verses are the inspiration for our small groups program at the church called Vine Groups. Uh, When they started many years ago, Vine Groups abide in Jesus as he abides in us, cultivating your enduring bond with Jesus over time. And this is what we do in those groups. Verse 5, I am the vine, he says, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me... And I in him, 
He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. It's just interesting. We can't do anything. Now, we can do some things. We can go canoeing. We can set up a spam account. We can go to no frills. Um, he's talking about you can't do anything of an enduring spiritual, eternal sense to do with your discipleship. That's what he's talking about. And this should also just give us humility, too. Sometimes we do something, we think, oh, how great that was. I gave to this certain cause, or I helped this certain person, or I prayed for my enemy. That's great. Um, let's be humble. It's, it's Jesus working through us. Apart from him, we can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Jesus isn't really one to beat around the bush, or the great bush, is he? Um, so what's going on here? So in one sense, he's talking about actual physical branches that go to, what well, you collect them, and they're good for nothing, so you burn them. But we know that Jesus is talking about more uh, than physical things, uh, don't we? He's talking about spiritual realities. And so the interesting thing about this is while he says this, this is actually playing out with the branch that has become disconnected. There's only 11 apostles. Why? Because who's gone? Judas. So he is, while he's teaching this, at this moment, he's going and betraying Jesus to the authorities. And then these disconnected branches are burned. And of course, we see in here kind of a larger teaching, right? A larger reality. This is a warning about hell, about the wrong side of everlasting judgment. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, I'm not totally going to get into this here because uh, this seems like Jesus is saying this is a blank check in prayer. Uh, it's, it's not totally, but I talked about this when we went over verses uh, 12 and 14 in chapter 14, so I'm not going to go over that now again here. But Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you may bear fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. There's that word again. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And so notice the connection there between abiding. If we are going to abide in Jesus' love, it doesn't just mean that we're going to say nice things about Him. We are going to do His commandments, His teachings. There's a direct relationship. If I love Him, I am going to do what He says. So, um, again, I'll reiterate what I said last week. What does Jesus say about loving our enemies? Well, that's what we do. What does Jesus say about helping the poor? That's what we do. What does Jesus say about sexual purity? That's what we do. What does Jesus say in John 4 about worshiping in spirit and truth? That is what we do. What does he say about compassion? That is what we do, etc. If we love him, we will abide in his love. Again, we make mistakes. We sin. We're broken. All of us do it. I'm the biggest sinner I know. And what happens? But we, we ask God for forgiveness. We repent. We commit to the new way. And we start over again tomorrow. These things, verse 11, I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. I love that. These things aren't just for some random purpose. This will actually give you joy. Now, what is it? <clears throat> now, I want to make a difference, a differential uh, here between happiness and joy, because uh, they're words that are related but are different. And sometimes people use them interchangeably, and that's not uh, totally helpful. And so here, I was talking with someone last year, Dan Scott. Uh, he was at the time the moderator, the national moderator of the Presbyterian Church in Canada. And you can hear about, you can hear it on the church's podcast. It was, it was a great interview. You had some great things to say. But in that, he talked about this difference between joy and happiness. 
uh, based on what he had learned out of a horrific childhood experience that he had. And here's what that experience was. While he was in elementary school, he and his siblings, uh, fire, fire, uh, their house had been set on fire. They, they run out into the street, and their house had been set ablaze in an act of arson. So it wasn't an act of, someone had actually set the house on fire, and the family business was on the first ground, and then they had this apartment thing outside, over top of the... So this is horrific, and they're, they're in the street, and their house burns to the ground. And um, <clears throat> so obviously they go <laughs> stay somewhere else that night because they don't have a house anymore. The very next morning, um, his father, a very devout man, gathers them together in a circle. Uh, they've had to borrow some clothes from friends to be able to go to school. And he sits them down. He opens his little Bible to James chapter 1, and he, he reads this. Count it as all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, fiery trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Consider pure joy. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then they said a prayer of thanksgiving, and that very same morning, he sent them off to school. Wow. My house burns down. I'm not sure I'm going to school the next day, right? And so he said, reflecting on that as he has grown up, as a man, this is how he understands the difference between joy and happiness. Okay, so I'm going to put a couple words up here. Next slide. And so happiness happens. And this was a helpful thing he pointed out. Look at how the word happiness looks a lot like the word happens. And that's why there's a little logo there of a roller coaster because it's up and down. It goes like this and happiness happens and comes and goes. We are, we are kind of reactive to the things that happen to us which may make us happy or sad. It just happens. So something bad happens, I feel sad. Something good happens, I feel happy. Something bad happens, I feel sad, right? But joy, he said, is more bedrock stuff. And this is what we find when we look at the scriptures about joy. Is more bedrock stuff. It is a deeper awareness of God's care, wisdom, and help, even through fiery trials. And so someone might betray me, but I can have a deeper joy because I trust that God is good, He is caring for me, He is wise and helping me. I might be uncertain about the future, or I might be sad about something. I might even have this, this big challenge in my life that, that I don't know what to do with and I don't know what's going to happen. I might not be happy about it, but joy is more bedrock stuff. A deep awareness of God's care, wisdom, and help, even through fiery trials. So Jesus is here introducing the idea of you know, abiding in him, loving him, keeping his commandments. This will be a source of joy in the very next passage, which we will look at next week. He will talk about how do you do that when the world hates you. This is increasing. As people of faith, we are getting hated more and more every single week. And yet, abiding in Jesus, we can have Joy. Continuing verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. That's what he called the uh, new commandment back in chapter 13, verse 34. Greater love has no one than this. And someone lay down their life for his friends. Now we know that to be true. We know that. You've, you've given that or you've received that maybe in some sort of sacrificial way. A friend or someone in your family, they would rather experience harm or discomfort themselves than to have you go through it. And so they go through that as a gift to you because they love you. Right? So that's what Jesus is saying here. And the greatest example of which is laying down his life for them. And this is foreshadowing because what's going to happen next? He's going to get tortured, flayed, flogged, humiliated, and crucified, which we will reflect on on Good Friday. So this is ultimately foreshadowing about himself. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, 
For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. So notice what the friendship is. It's not, it's not uh, equal, by the way. It's not egalitarian. They're only his friends if, verse 14, they do what he commands uh, him. But also, um, the idea with this is they're friends because now they know the intimate knowledge of what his heavenly father is doing. Jesus receives it. He gives it. Because they're on the inside track, they're his friends. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I commend you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Now there's so many points of application in this uh, text. And each, each verse in this, this is so rich. Uh, each verse in here could be a, a, a sermon itself, an application in and of itself. But what I want to zero in on is this idea of abiding with Jesus, of closely cultivating one's enduring bond with Jesus over time. Now, what's the word? Abide in him. Stay in him. Remain in him. Well, I'd like to suggest another word that isn't used as much. And sometimes when words aren't used as much, when, when we hear them for the first time again, it's like, oh, it, it kind of peaks something. Oh, right, that word. And we're reminded about something about the original power of this, of this concept, and that word is tarry, okay? Tarry in Jesus. Now, you don't hear it very often, but when you do hear it, it kind of perks your ears up. My older brother Derek has a, uh, he came up with a song in 2011 called That's How I Want to Go Out. And uh, some of you have heard it. I shared it online this, this week, so maybe you've heard it. It was up for Juno for best songwriter, best video, best song of the year. It was a great song. It is a great song. When it came out, I was working here at the church, and, and someone came into the office. We were talking about some things. And, oh, I love that, I love that new song that your brother wrote. Um, I love it because it uses the word Terry. And in the chorus, there's a line that says, I'll turn 88 next Tuesday if the good Lord lets me Terry. Now, <clears throat> uh, I, I don't say that. Just It's a great song. I don't say that just because he's my brother. Uh, it's a very good song. Uh, lo- wonderful lyrics and melody and everything else. Uh, and I'm sure that person who talked to me also loved it for other reasons. Uh, but there's something about that word tarry that was different, that made it stand out. Tarry, if the good Lord lets me tarry, if I tarry with Jesus. Now, here's what we're going to do. There are certain things that we do to spend time with God, and these are called spiritual disciplines. And there's many spiritual disciplines. I'm going to highlight four this morning. Prayer, Bible reading, corporate worship, worshiping with the body of Christ, and fourth is serving or volunteering. Now, here's the thing. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to add more to, to, to what you are doing. And sometimes we have a sermon and there's a point, okay, here's something else I need to do. This isn't that. This is about being present in the time you're already taking. Okay? Because we live in a world of distraction. When it comes to our spiritual disciplines, whether it's prayer or Bible reading or, or, or worship or volunteering or helping others, we live in this world of distraction. Therefore, there are times when we're just taking a box, we're actually not abiding with Jesus. We're not spending time, we're not tarrying with him because we're acting like he's not there. What did we talk about last week by the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the power and presence of God. It's the Spirit of Christ that indwells his people. And so if we are just going through the motions, if we are so distracted when we are seeking to do the things that God says will draw us nearer to him, we're actually kind of being rude. We're acting like God is not really there. But if we are present in just that time that we have already set aside, you've already done it. It's as if we're saying, Lord, you are important enough to me that I'm going to be present to you. So here's the examples. Prayer. Prayer is something that happens, and sometimes our posture about prayer shows us a lot. 
about what we're doing. We're kind of slouching off the couch, and we're falling, and we're twisting around, and uh, <clears throat> we're so easily distracted, or we're kind of, you know, kind of mumbling away, and, and, and as if God is not there, as if he's not listening, as if we just got to tick that box, okay, I prayed about it, I'm fine. A lovely story comes to us from Susanna Wesley. Now, her, her kids were quite famous, John and Charles Wesley, preachers, hymn writers. They wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing, a bunch of other songs that are, that are quite well known. But Susanna had 19 kids, 19 kids, um, <clears throat> 10 of whom survived infancy. 10 survived infancy, but she, she gave birth to 19 kids. That's a woman who's busy, right? I think someone today has got five, six kids. I'm like, wow, I just, you blow my mind. I can't imagine having that many kids. And they had frequent illness in the house. She had uh, significant marital problems, and they had financial problems. But she had this practice. Every day in the afternoon, she would go into her rocking chair, and she would take her apron, and she'd put it over top of her head, and she'd rock back and forth. And that was her symbol to the family. You don't interrupt mom because mom's talking to God. You get so much more of my time, but this is prayer time. It's not like she prayed all day. It's not like she made more time. It's not like she was adding a bunch of new spiritual disciplines to her list. This is my prayer time. I'm going to be present in the time I'm already taking because quite often we just get distracted. And so, Lord, I'm going to be present to you because that's how important you are to me. This is what it means to tarry with Jesus. Second example, Bible reading. Well, <clears throat> the Bible... It's an important part of our discipline, especially as, as Protestants. This is something that, uh, that many of us do, and we should be doing every day. We're reading through our, our Bibles, and Jesus says we're going to tarry in him. We're going to learn his commandments, and this is back in verse 10. And his teachings, how do we do that? Well, it's in the Bible. So this is, is not optional. But here's quite a, what happens. <clears throat> um, okay, I'm going to read something through the book of James. Okay, i got got 10 minutes here. Okay. Um, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously without uh, ding, ding. Oh, check my phone. Okay, what's that? Oh, okay, that, that can wait. Okay, so where was I? Uh, but let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Ding, ding. Oh, man, this thing comes. What? I, I told you I'd be there in a few minutes. So I'm already here. I better check Instagram. Oh, those people are at Great Wolf Lodge again? What do they get? The oh, my. I can't believe she's wearing that. What do you mean? I can't believe. You know, this is what we do. And this is the Word of God. And so maybe we just need to set, a time aside, set aside the time we're already taking and just be focused what we are doing. Am I actually reading the Word of God? By the power of His Spirit, is He going to do something in my life through it? Am I going to learn something for the, for the living of these days? Third example is worship. Now, worship is something not that we watch. It's something we do. Worship is a noun, but it's also a verb. And you find this when you go through the text. Now, sometimes the word worship uh, in Greek simply means like serving someone or whatever. Sometimes it means prostrating yourself in front of someone in an act of allegiance prostrating yourself before someone in an act of allegiance. And that person is God. Now, we're not physically doing that, but that should be the posture in our hearts and minds. But because we live in this consumer culture, we think, oh, this is something I take in. And you do take it in, but it's actually something you are doing. And so there are people who come to worship, they never worship. I pray that that's none of you, whether you're here or you're online. I pray that this is something that we are able to do as a verb. And some people come to worship, they never actually worship because they're just ticking off our religious box, did that for the week. One of the Puritans had this practice that I've adopted. On Saturday night, he would pray, God, please ready my heart and my mind to worship you tomorrow. Help me to lift high your name as you rightly deserve, to praise you, to reorient my life around you, to focus on you. 
to be built up by the body of Christ, to build up others in the body of Christ and by your spirit to hear a word. And that's what I also pray for you on Saturday nights. Dear God, everyone who makes Westminster their church home, ready them for worship. Make them lively in the morning. Lord, help them to come hear a word not from me, but from you, Lord, to lift high your name in adoration. Build us up. Help us to, to be the body of Christ and to be your people in the world and to encourage one another and to do everything for your glory, Lord, because the world hates us. We need to worship and honor you and sit our lives on you. Fourth, serving others. Now, this is something great. I'm really encouraged by the way that, that you all serve other people in many ways, many of you, whether it's volunteering, whether it's in the church, uh, whether it's out in the community. Some of you, it's, it's the little league. Some of you, it's the hospital. Some of you, it's at the center. Um, there's so many things that you are doing, which is great, but what can happen over time is we forget that this is actually a spiritual discipline that has to do with us abiding in Jesus, tarrying with Jesus, and it becomes duty. And I get, duty is not a bad word. There, there are things that we should do dutifully. There's good things. We have, we have responsibilities. That's good. But all of a sudden, something starts to corrode in our hearts and minds that this is just something that, that I don't get anything out of, and this doesn't make me feel good all the time. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25, that when we help the people who are the least of the these people who need help in some way, we're actually serving Jesus. And so actually when we volunteer and serve in all the ways that, that you do in different ways, we're actually doing it for Jesus. That's tarrying in him. That's abiding in him. That's being in him. It's as if we're saying, Lord, you are important enough to me that I'm going to be present to you. Be present in the time you're already taking. There's a final thought this morning as we think about tarrying with Jesus, something which nurtures us over the long haul, which is a source of joy because it roots us on a daily way in more bedrock stuff, in that, in that fact that God is who he says he is. He is good. He is almighty. He is caring. He is wise through the ups and downs. As we think about tarrying in Jesus, something you, think, uh, you hear at Christmas sometimes on a post online, on the radio talk show, you hear this, kids don't want your presence as much as they want your presence. Ever heard that? Presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S, more than your presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. Now, it's true and it's not true. Kids want presents. Let's be honest. I've got kids. You get up on Christmas morning like, all right, sorry, no presents this year, but we're going to have family time. They're like, great. Um, um, so it's, but the thing is, as you get older, those presents don't matter as much, right? Because the presence matters more. And so Jesus comes to us. He is God with us. One of his titles is Emmanuel, Matthew chapter 1. And but just as he is with us, he, based on this text in John 15 and others, he also wants us to be with him, with our presence. And this isn't about adding a bunch of stuff to your schedule. Be present in, be, pre, be truly present in the time you're already taking. How do you spell love? T-I-M-E. Jesuit Peter Claver wrote, Seek God in all things, and we shall find God by our side. Seek God in all things, and we shall find God by our side. So it is in Christ. Amen.